Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that your word will be open to our us and that you will open up our hearts to receive and to do what you say. Fill us with your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at Acts 15. And if any of you don't have your Bible with you, you can raise your hand. And the ushers that are here, they'll pass out the Bible. And while they're passing out the Bibles, um, this chapter challenges us a little bit to think in a little different way. So I'm going to start out with a, uh, the cookie monster, which one of these doesn't belong, right? So you got three plates with three co- two cookies and one with three. And So which one of these is not a church? That's what we're going to look at. So the first one, the second one is, and the third one. So the first one, how many say that that's not a church? Okay, some people. That's uh, St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow. And it was a church, and then the communists shut it down, turned it into a museum. But now the Russian Orthodox Church uses it, although it's mostly used for tourism. The Russian Orthodox Church does use it sometimes. So we could say it's a church. What about the one in the upper right there? How many say that's not a church? A few of you. That is a spa and a gym in Montreal. It used to be a church. Unfortunately, it was converted. What about that lower right one? That's a house church in China. And then we have ours, which is also not in a conventional church building. Here we are in a school. Okay. Second little exercise. This one should be easy for everybody. Where can a person be saved from their sin? In a bar? In a park? In somebody's home? All of the above, right? Or it's also possible in a church. Could be any of those. So before we go to Acts 15, I'm just going to review a little bit of the background so when we read it, we won't get stuck. Peter refers back to what happened in Acts 10 and 11. So back in Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision where a sheet comes down from heaven and on the sheet, there are a bunch of animals that are unclean that he's not supposed to eat. And God says, kill and eat. And he says, no, Lord, I would never eat those things. And then the sheet goes back up to the sky, and it comes down, and the same thing happens three times. And in parallel to that, God has given another vision to a man named Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who lives in another place. And in the vision... Cornelius is told where to go to find Peter. He says, go to this town, to this street, to a house of Simon the Tanner, and you'll find someone named Peter, and he's going to tell you what you need to know. So when he sends his servants to go to that place and they find Peter, Peter's had this vision. He realizes that's from God, God saying, and by the way, God said it with the vision, Don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. 
So he realizes that he needs to go to these Gentiles, that they're not unclean. He goes there. He tells them the gospel of Jesus. They immediately believe. They receive the message. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues as evidence that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And now that they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, Peter says, how can we stop them from being baptized in water? So they're baptized and they're welcomed into the family of God. So that's the part of the background. Another couple of things I should mention when it says Simeon, that's referring to Simon, Simon Peter. So Simeon is the pure Hebrew form of Simon, which is Peter. <clears throat> James, there are several Jameses in the New Testament. This James is Jesus's brother, the author of the book of James. So with that in mind, now we can read the text. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between the us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. <clears throat> After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is 
that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the story goes that Gentiles are coming to follow Jesus. And <clears throat> there's a dispute that arises. Some people get up, and these are actually, it says they're believers. They get up and they say they have to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised and follow the, the different ceremonies and customs and the, uh, the holidays that they had. But Peter says, no, that's not right. Remember what happened back there with Cornelius. God opened the door for the Gentiles to come in, not requiring any of those things from them, just faith in Jesus Christ. James gets up and he calls for a compromise and he says, we don't want to make it difficult for the Gentiles, but he gives them three requirements. But before I go into the three requirements, just talk a, <clears throat> a little bit about um, sometimes God makes it easy for people to come to faith. Sometimes it's like everything is so smooth, it's all worked out. I remember when, we, when I was a postdoc at Ohio State University, there was a ministry for international students called IFI. And at IFI, everything was set up for us. There was a, a, a big gathering. 200 people would come. 100 of those were volunteers from the churches in the city. And another 100 were international students. They would have a great message, short message from the Bible and then uh, they would sing these peppy worship songs. And then we'd split up into actually fairly large groups. And one of the groups <clears throat> was an overview of the Bible. The person taught the overview of the Bible. And all we had to do was show up. And here they gave us a little piece of paper. The leader gave us a little piece of paper at the end of his, his teaching and said, here's a few questions. Why don't you just discuss those in little groups? So every week we would go there and this little group we gathered together would be the same group of people. Two Chinese couples, Minglan and me, and another American lady who was also a believer. <clears throat> and we discussed these little questions at the end. And the Lord brought us close together. And then we heard that the other American lady, she, she became pregnant. <clears throat> and within six months, all four of the ladies in the group became pregnant and we had four little babies and we had the four little babies you know we could line them up on on a bed side by side and take pictures with them all laying there it was so cute but god used that time you know we made chicken soup for each other when the baby was born and we brought god brought us close together and so during that time one of the ladies said yeah i want to follow jesus she she got baptized and then a couple years later, we still kept in touch. Another one was baptized. And so the Lord made it easy for them. But we find ourselves sometimes in situations where we have to think a little bit harder about the question 
and a little bit more creatively to deal with how do we make it easier for people to come to God. So that's what we're going to deal with here. But before we go into all of that, um, James had given them three requirements. One was not to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. Another, not to eat meat of strangled animals or, of, or to eat blood. I put those two together because if you eat meat, the, the animal's been strangled, the blood's still in the meat. So it's basically the same thing. And then the third one was no sexual immorality. So two of these are basically, you can see, are similar, and one is a little bit different. And so I asked the question again, like the cookie monster, which one of these is different from the others? And in order to answer that question, we have to see what's the reasoning behind these instructions that James gave. What he was trying to do was make peace in the church. He wanted to address the fact that some of these uh, Jewish believers were being offended because the Gentiles weren't following their customs and, and laws. And so what he's doing, and this is a little bit of background that probably a lot of us wouldn't know if, if we hadn't read it. Um, he's appealing to the Jewish people's expectations from, for the Gentiles. He's saying, well, the Gentiles were all born from Noah. All the nations came from Noah. And Noah knew certain things that he was supposed to do. And so they said, well, there's laws of Noah, and then there's laws of Moses. We shouldn't expect them to follow the law of Moses, but at least they should follow the laws of Noah. And so he points out, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So you think back historically the Jewish people were driven out of their land into exile. They were scattered all over the world, especially throughout the Roman Empire. So every city that people would go, there were Jewish synagogues. And now the gospel was going out, and there were Jewish Christians in most of those places. And they didn't want to offend them by having the Gentiles coming to faith and then doing things that made them feel uncomfortable. So they said, well, let's just hold them to the laws of Noah. But you think about some of those Two of them, at least, were basically just cultural requirements, like eating blood. When we go to the grocery store and we buy meat, we don't know if there's still blood in the meat. If the meat was strangled, how it was killed, we don't have any idea. It doesn't really matter to us, and nobody's offended when we eat the meat. Even if we have Jewish friends, they don't really care if we eat pork or what we eat because they're kind of used to living with Gentiles. So it's not a big deal. The, um, we had people in China that they would eat actually blood pudding. Whereas one, one, uh, <clears throat> one girl came to us and said, you know, I don't know what to do. She said, my mom makes this blood pudding as a special treat for us when I go back to my hometown to visit. And I don't want to make her feel bad by saying I can't eat that because I'm a Christian. I said, well, that was a cultural requirement. I don't think you have any Jewish um, followers of Jesus in your hometown in China. Don't worry about that. You can eat whatever she puts in front of you, <laughs> right? Then that's the thing, right? So we have to understand where the, where the things are coming from and whether they still apply or not. But one of these is different from the others, and that's sexual immorality because it has a much deeper root. The basis for that is on the love between people 
and the bond that God has put between a man and his wife. So Minglan and I, we depend on each other. I depend on Minglan for things. She depends on me for things. And that's the way that it's, it works. So for 25 years, we've kind of woven our lives together. We raised our kids together. We have a lot in common. There's no way that you could break that bond without destroying both of us. It's kind of like this picture, these two trees. They grow their roots together. And if you uproot one, you're going to destroy both. And that's the way the marriage is, is that kind of thing. So you, you don't want to dis- destroy people and betray a trust, sexual immoralities like that. But James's main point is, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In the NIV it says, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who t- are turning to God. We don't want to make somebody carry an elephant on their back in order to come into the kingdom. That wouldn't be right. So I put a paraphrase, make it easy for people to come to God. So the rest of my time I'm going to spend on understanding <clears throat> how that applies to us, but just, just to point out, Why does God want us not to make it difficult for people to turn to God? Because God loves the world, and he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3.8. We're God's spiritual children. So God wants us to love people just like he does. I heard this quoted many times. This is a quote from Charles Peace. He was a criminal. He murdered people. He, he was a thief. He, was, he did all, all kinds of things. But as he was being led to his execution, this was back in the 1800s, um, the priest went to read his last rites to him. And he turned to the priest and he said, Sir, if I believed what you say you believe, Even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and knees just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. God cares about people. He wants them to come to repentance. He understood it right, even though he was a criminal. And our hearts, we need to to have our hearts moved and care about the people around us, whether they know God or not. Because it's important to God, it should be important to us. And when it comes to the gospel, anything we add to it subtracts from it. What I mean by that is, just as Peter was saying, we're saved by grace through faith. If we add any other requirements to that and say you need grace and something else, circumcision, following the customs of Moses, it's not right. And it makes it more difficult for people to come to faith. So we as believers need to make it as simple as possible, boil it down to the basic faith in Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. That's what gets us into relationship with God. This was so important that Paul dedicates quite a bit of space to this in Galatians 2. In fact, I Last week, 
Nick was talking about Galatians. If anybody preaches any other gospel to you than the one you've already heard, let him be eternally condemned. Here's what he gets at. Cephas is another word for Peter, by the way. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Some pretty hard words. Paul was willing to stand up to the leader of the Jerusalem church that Jesus himself had appointed because this was a serious issue. So we don't want to put things in front of people. Christianity adapts, it transforms, it doesn't require people to change everything about neutral aspects of their life, their culture, their language. You don't have to abandon your family and, and hate them, although it says you, you know that, but it's not in that sense, right? We don't have to get rid of all of the cultural things. A lot of those things are neutral, and we can use them for good. So the next question is, what about today? How do we make it difficult for people to come to Christ today? I'm just going to scratch the surface of answering that question, so I'm going to send all of you back. If you're in home groups, you get to discuss that. Hopefully, if you have time, you can discuss this question in your home groups, what makes it difficult for people to come to God today? First, they have to come to our church. We probably don't say it in those exact words. In fact, I hope none of us would ever say that. But in practice, it's usually our first default strategy we, we think of. We've got to tell people to come to our church then they can hear the message of the gospel, and then they'll believe and they'll be saved. But the burden actually is on us to go to them, and we'll see that. I'm going to develop these. This, I'm just going to introduce the, the topics right now. Sometimes we make it difficult because we don't go to them, and the reasons we don't go, sometimes we borrow beliefs from the world. We get confused between a gift and a command when Jesus tells us to go. And we have inadequate goals in training. We think we kind of pat ourselves on the back when we haven't really completed the tasks that Jesus has asked us to do. And finally, some of the barriers are actually in them and not in us. So people misunderstand us. And because of that, it's difficult for them to come to God. But we have to figure out how to overcome those as well. So let's deal with the first one. The surveys show that 85% of people in this Bay Area, if we ask them to come to church, we invite them to church, they're not going to come. Maybe that's your experience. I, I know I've been asking people to come to church a long time, many, many people, and I get the same response. No, not interested. I'm not into that. 
Oh, that's your thing. Whatever they say, it's usually no, 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 no. Reminds me of the <clears throat> days when I was dating in high school or trying to. <laughs> I would get up courage and ask a girl out. She would say no. And get up courage, ask another girl. She'd say no. Finally, a girl would want to say, okay, I'll go with you. And then we'd go out. Nothing happened. I was so boring. She didn't want to go out again. <laughs> That's kind of the way, right? We ask people to go to church. They don't want to come. And then finally, like I had one guy at work. He came and he sat in the back. <clears throat> he only stayed for, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 minutes. He actually didn't get to the sermon. <laughs> so he missed the sermon, but he heard the singing and, and he heard Ian get up here and talk. He said, wow, what they say is just like what you say. You have to depend on God and all this stuff. It's like, wow, it's like you guys all talk alike. <laughs> But it was interesting to see his perspective. He was kind of coming in from outside and studying what was going on as if he were going into a foreign country. And if you think about it, that's what we ask people to do. We ask them to come to our church to a place where all the people here, they don't know. And they, we sing songs that they've never heard before. And we open a Bible that they don't understand and we use terminology that's hard for them to grasp and then we wonder why they don't come or they won't come back it's it's too much to ask people who are not raised in a church or in, or familiar with this environment to just show up it's a big barrier for them to cross it's just as big as it is for the Gentiles at that time to become Jews. We can't ask that much from them, at least not in the beginning. Maybe when people become believers and they, they love the Lord and they're following their faithful disciples, then they're going to have a hunger for this sort of thing. They're going to come to church. But we need to think about things from other people's perspective. So rather than ask them to come, we need to change our mindset and start thinking about we go to them, to their homes, to the places where they gather, and the things that they like to do, we can join them in those, as far as they're not anything wrong with it. And our discussion should focus on Jesus and not, oh, it's about my church. Oh, at my church we do this, at my church we do that. It's, it's the foreign thing for them. Let's start our conversation with Jesus is great. This is what he did in my life. A lot of people, and we hear this, a lot of people will say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the institutional church. So well, that's what we're dealing with out there. We need to adjust our approach to understand where people are coming from. So that's the first point is we need to go, not expect people to come. It's okay to invite people to come. But given the facts, it may not be that effective. We need to make sure that we go to them. That doesn't mean we don't need church. We still need the church. This is where our kids grew up. They were discipled here. 
they learn the Bible, they learn the stories, they, they come and they fit in, this is their home, this is their family. They go out to college and university and they keep going to church because that's what they know and they love. And thank God for that. It's where we get fed and we get our needs met sometimes. One time uh, David and I were out in the community here and I had a particularly difficult time. We had a, the person we were talking to was really argumentative and I was feeling discouraged. And there was a, something spiritual was bothering me in my heart. And so I came to ch- church the next day and during the worship time, they have the prayer over to the side. I went over to pray, and Jerry prayed for me, really ministered to my heart. But after the service, it was still bothering me, and, and Ian looked at me, and he saw it in my eyes. He said, something's bothering you. I was like, that's pretty perceptive. I said, so I told him what, was, what had gone on, and he said, let me pray for you. And he prayed for me right there. And I felt really ministered to it. I felt a lot better and Nick had preached that Sunday about fasting. He said, you fast when you're really desperate for the Lord to do something in your life. I said, that's it. I need that. And I fasted that day, and the Lord ministered to me some more. And then by the end of the day, I, I was refreshed and recovered. And then the next Saturday, we, David and I went out again. So the Lord works through the church. We need this. But we have to understand that other people are not ready for that yet. All right. Now, some of the things I'm talking about have to do with our methods and our means. And so I want to address a concern that people always raise when we talk about these things. What we do matters, not just what we believe, right? When Jesus went out and he traveled from town to town, he was led by the Holy Spirit. Everything he did was by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just what he said. Same thing with the church in Acts. So it's not only about our theology. The theology is important, but it's how we obey what Jesus commands that matters just as much. You think about when we go to work, we study really hard. We want to get good at what we do. We take years to get to be experts in our field. We learn about quality and how to Um, uh, concepts like continuous improvement and how to um, learn from the past mistakes that have been made. We have lessons learned, and then we apply the improvements we did to the next product so it's better. We keep making things better and better. We work hard at it, and there's nothing wrong with that. At church, we we shouldn't think that just because we want to learn and study and read books and understand things better and work hard at what we do, that doesn't make it manipulation. That doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's not in that. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts both ways, in what we plan and think about and also in what we need at the moment. So we may go out there with the gospel and we're hit with some question that we don't know the answer to, and the Holy Spirit will give us, prompt us with an answer at that moment, that's the Holy Spirit leading. But it's also the Holy Spirit leading when we're studying at home. So just want to point that out. 
for whatever method we decide to choose, remember we're going, not asking people to come. Another problem we have sometimes is we borrow beliefs from the world, and this is one I've heard many times even from my own kids. I have to earn the right to talk about Jesus. It's not true. Jesus already earned the right. Jesus told us in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. He gives us everything we need. We don't have to earn the right to tell people about Jesus. And the reality is that the longer we wait to identify ourselves as spiritual people or followers of Jesus, however you want to phrase it, the harder it gets to bring the subject up. And you think about the logic of it. If I know that somebody's life depends on the fact that they know Jesus, wouldn't I want to tell them as soon as I can? People can see through that flaw in our own logic, and they'll, they'll wonder, you've known me all this time, why you bring it up now? So we shouldn't wait too long. In fact, I have this book is called uh, T for T. It's Training for Trainers, an excellent book. Um, and it, it teaches people how to, uh, to train others so that they can go out and share the gospel and then they can train others and so on. And so it's, it's this replicating process. And Steve Smith and Yin Kai wrote the book. Steve Smith was planting churches in a, in a Muslim area, which was very, had been traditionally very resistant to the gospel. There had been no churches planted there previously but they were finding some success, and, they, and so he was talking with some of the people, the new believers in this Muslim people group, and this is what one of them said. Steve, for seven years, we bought the lie that we had to build relationships first and slowly reveal our Christian identity. It took us years we saw ourselves as picking up rocks to prepare the field to hear the gospel. We would drop little nuggets of truth, but not really the gospel. As we developed these relationships and got very close to these lost friends, we got nervous about sharing the gospel. We thought, what if they reject us? We began to forget the reason we were there. Finally, after seven years of no fruit, we got desperate. We shared the gospel with these friends, and they almost all rejected us. That's when we realized that our approach of relationship evangelism was getting us nowhere. We resolved as a team to share the gospel first and build relationships afterwards. We started sharing everywhere. We bridged into gospel conversations with as many people as we could. A lot of people did not respond but we finally began to find some that said yes. And it is through these new believers that God is starting to build his kingdom. It's pretty powerful from someone who, you know, he's, he's documenting church planting movements that have gone out to literally millions and millions of people as the gospels multiply. The, the one that they write about in this book is a, uh, something that happened in China, there were about 1.2 million Christians 
in this church planting movement within nine years or 12 years, within 12 years. So they know what they're talking about. This is, it's a challenge to us, but we need to think a little bit differently if we want to make it easier for people to come to Christ. Another problem we have is confusion between gift and command, right? There's a, there's a gift of evangelism, but not very many people have that gift. But there's a command to, to tell people the good news about Jesus, and that's for all of us. It's like love. There's actually a gift of love described by Paul in, in his list, but love isn't just a gift. It's a command. Everybody has to love their neighbor and love their brothers and sisters in Christ. The reality is that it's difficult. Evangelism is hard. We get rejected. We get turned away. We find that what we try doesn't work. We got to try something else. It's not easy. But we do it because we love our Lord Jesus and we want to obey him. We want to do what he says for us to do. And there's a great reward because when you get to see a new believer and the joy in their heart and how they submit to the Lord and they grow in faith, it's, it's such a beautiful thing. There's a tremendous reward in that. It's worth every bit of the effort. The command is everywhere in the Bible. It's not just Matthew 28. I'm a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is his follower, not just a student, not just learning. I have to obey the commandments he gave to his disciples. There's a group of Christians that get together on Fridays at lunch at my workplace, and we were reading through the Gospel of John. And as we got to chapter 15 here, it popped out at me again. When the counselor comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. That's what Jesus said. It's for his disciples. We're his disciples. It's our job. One of the things that we suffer from is that we set low goals for ourselves. What I mean is we we think of I'm having a spiritual conversation with someone this week. Now I'm satisfied. I've, I've done what Jesus required of me. But Jesus' command was to go and make disciples. So spiritual conversations are necessary, but they're not the end. They're a means to get to the end. We have to have lots of spiritual conversations in order to lead somebody to Christ. <clears throat> so we might ask ourselves, it's hard. How are we going to lead anybody to follow Jesus, to become a disciple, to, make, to be like us, to follow Jesus? Everything is possible with Jesus. We need to trust him. And when we feel that it's challenging, it's difficult, it's impossible for us, 
that should drive us to our knees to pray. Not give up. Pray, perseverance, and dependence on him. We need him to do this job. We can't do it on our own. Nevertheless, like I said, we can put, invest some time and effort to learn and get some training. The ultimate goal, the ultimate end that Jesus referred to is in Matthew 24, 14. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. Until that's done, the goal hasn't been completed. How to make disciples. It takes Jesus-centered discussion on an ongoing basis, repeated basis. The ideal situation is if somebody, you find somebody who actually is interested enough that they're willing to look at the Bible together with you on a regular basis. So you open up the Bible, you read it, and then you listen to what they say about it, as opposed to teaching people what we know. So that way they learn more, and they own what they do. And when you ask them, what are you going to do with that? Or how does that apply to your life? And they answer it. They own the action. And they, they're more likely to do something with it. So discipleship involves listening a lot more than teaching. Especially in the environment we live. So there's repeated sessions. And then if we have to give life counsel, I think Nick has said this many times, that should be coming from scriptural principles, not from our own mind. The natural path for the gospel to go out is through the relationships that we have, our network of relationships. In the, in the Bible, there's the term for household. It's called oikos in, in the Greek. And those who do church planting, they talk about oikos maps. So you map out all, all the relationships that you have, who's a believer, who's not a believer, who's close to God, who's far from God. And then you, you know who it is that you're, you haven't yet spoken to about the gospel. Now, a lot of us have been believers for many years. And what happens is I've got my family and my little circle of friends, and those people I've been sharing about Jesus for years, and I keep getting the same response. No, I'm not interested. Change the subject, whatever it is. It's, there comes a time when you know, people have already either believed or they're not interested and they're, they're cutting us off. So where do we go from there? Those of us who have been believers for a long time— and all of these books, they document, by the way, that people who have been believers for a long time are less effective in evangelism. So we have to deal with that. So what's the answer? What's the solution? In fact, I, I probably around in this church, let me just ask one question. How many of you have been a believer in Jesus for less than two years or are not yet following Jesus? Anybody? Just one or two. So the rest of us, probably we suffer from the same issue. 
I know this is my, my frustration. Well, one, one thing when our relationship network is stale is to ask ourselves, maybe we can revisit that list and say, is there somebody that maybe we missed or we haven't talked to in a long time and they may, their situation may have changed and they may be open now. So we can go back and revisit that. But another thing is to get out and find more, right? We need to go out and expand that network and find other people, especially those who might be open to the gospel. So you look at principles like Mark 138. In Mark 138, the people of Capernaum came to Jesus and said, we want you to, to stay here with us. We love you so much. And he said, no, I have to go on to other places as well because that's why I came. Romans 15.23, Paul's saying, there's no place left for me. Of course, he was a pioneer missionary, so he would plant a church and then the other people would take care of follow-up. But for us and our relationship network, that's what happens. Sometimes there's no place left for us to go in that relationship network. We, we need to go outside. If we want to continue to follow and obey the commands of Jesus, we got to go outside that network and forge new relationships. And with wisdom, once we find someone, God willing, who's willing to look at the scriptures, it's just us and the Bible is something reproducible. We keep it simple so that it can multiply. That's the training for trainers principles. And because everybody is going to carry the gospel and the new believers are often the most effective, we want to baptize quickly and empower them and train them and teach them how to share the gospel right away. So it's, this priesthood of all the believers, even new ones. And meanwhile, new believers have a lot of issues sometimes. There's sin left over in their lives that they're still dealing with, and so we have to deal with the mess and be prepared. There's going to be some challenges there. But we rely on the Holy Spirit the whole time. This is a little tool that I found is helpful for me and getting more focused on obedience and going out, but it's a good tool for new believers to give them. It's called the three-column method. Don't try to read the handwriting. It's too messy. But uh, <clears throat> the left column, the first column, is just rewriting the Bible verses word for word as you find them in the Bible. This is Matthew 5, 30 to 32. And then the second column is your own words. You paraphrase it in your own words completely um, not using the words that were in the original text. And then the third column is, I will. What I'm going to do in response to this word that I've wrestled with and, and reworded into my own. So I got to this one that says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. What was my application? Cut off the fear and go. So probably a lot of you are like me. You have a fear of those situations going out, especially with people you don't know or people are you're forging out into new territory with the gospel. You get you get scared. You're afraid to be rejected or afraid for whatever reason. And 
if you have that experience, just keep in mind that we, we obey the Lord and we have to put our fear in the back burner. The last one I want to talk about is there are false perceptions of us out there in the world. Paul was misunderstood sometimes. He was driven out of town. People thought that Paul and Barnabas were Hermes and Zeus, and they started to bring out the bulls, and they were going to sacrifice to them. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, 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 and they ripped their clothes, and they shouted at people, don't do such a terrible thing. So they were misunderstood, but we can be misunderstood too. And a lot of times the perception of people out there in, in the world is like we're political. That may, that's probably not accurate for most of us, but that's what people are thinking. And they're thinking that we're prideful because we say we have a message, we have the truth, and you don't have it. That's what they hear. It's it's not from our heart. From our heart, we really, I think, most of us are genuinely sincere. So we say Jesus loves you, and they're like, they're hearing the Charlie Brown teacher. Wah, 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 right? It's the message that they receive and what we speak is different. So we, we've got to understand, okay, we're working from that disadvantage that, People are already assuming, well, you think you know something that I, that I don't have. What makes you think you know more than me? And that's a challenge. So how do we deal with that when people assume we're prideful or when they're prideful? The way Jesus did, with humility. The only way to tackle pride is through humility. So we got to have a humble heart when we go to people, and that means we need to listen to them. Listen a lot. And when people complain about what we've done wrong as a church and all the things that pe- people have done badly, or even about ourselves, maybe we made some mistakes or sins in the past and they point it out. We need to be humble and admit those things and take responsibility. Then the other thing is to ask wise questions, to really listen deeply to people. So I, I have this book called God Space. It's a really challenging book. It made me think a lot about all the things that I had been doing wrong. But one of the things here I thought was just as really a gem is this chapter here about asking wondering questions. I'm wondering about how you arrived at that conclusion. I'm wondering about your impression of Christians. I'm wondering what role religion has played in shaping your life. I'm wondering what's your spiritual background. Or how my answer to that question made you feel. You're asking questions to help people to open up and talk more. And as they share, eventually they get to the point where they say, okay, I've talked all this time. What do you think? That's when they give us the wide open invitation. And when we speak the gospel in that situation, we get a lot wider welcome. That's different from earning the right. We're not spending three, six months to get to the point where we come to the gospel. This is within a conversation, 20 minutes or a half hour. So it's listening before speaking. That's in Proverbs. That's wisdom. So last thing is, you know, when we want to expand out, there's some things that the church is doing that can be helpful there's the Kids Club. It's, it's been tremendously fruitful. 
Minglan's group had eight kids. All eight of them said they want to follow Jesus. Seven of them really knew what they were talking about. So we're going to try to follow. That's pretty good. Seven, you know. So seven out of eight, it's, it's amazing, right? That's a great fruit. Now, some of those kids are brought up in Christian homes already, so they, it was natural for them to come to, to that point. But we want to follow up on that. You know, there's already interest in the gospel, so maybe we can touch with some of those families. Another thing is the, the teen challenge that Josh's group has been working with, you know, they have a tremendous amount of fruit because they're working with people who have great need. And then Foster the Bay that Patty and Jason have you know, really been forging relationships in the community with that. But I, you know what? It was my prayer when Suan was really little. She's still little, but when she was really little, they, they were having those hearings, the court hearings, whether they could stay with Jason and Patty or they could come to be or they'd have to go back to the birth parents and my prayer was that they would be able to stay because then suan would grow up in the church be exposed to the gospel hear the gospel from jason and patty be brought up that way and sure enough you know i get the joy of being able to see her i'm teaching the two to four year old class and see her sit there and sing those songs with joy in her heart about how she loves jesus that's that's a great, wonderful thing. So those are ways that we can reach out. Of course, the, the children's ministry of this church is a vital ministry because that's we're discipling the, the next generation. And then there's uh, any gospel sentiment. You know, there's a lot of things we can do. But the question is, now, I just want to leave you with one last point. If we go around this Mercy Hill Church, within a short walking distance, there are over 2,000 homes with multiple times that number of people living in them. Most of them don't know the Lord and have never heard the gospel. Not the true gospel. And so I leave you with this. is what God said to Jonah in 411. There are 150,000 people in that city that don't know the right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Is God concerned about the people around us? He is. Lord, break our hearts for the lost. Help us not to be satisfied until your will is being done on the earth like it is in heaven to pray for that to happen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.